We open the Holy Scriptures and turn back to Esther chapter 2. Having considered nearly the entire chapter last week, we come to the last few verses. So we'll read the chapter once more, and our text will be verses 21 through 23. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Hege, the king's chamberlain keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. And the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, And when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification, with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Now, when every maid's turn was come to go in to King Ahasuerus, After that she had been twelve months, according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given to her to go with her out of the the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, And on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women to the custody of Sheeshgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king, She required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed, 
And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto the king Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. Now begins our text. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Esther has become queen of the Persian Empire. Something from a human perspective utterly astonishing. Young Jewish girl, the descendant of Babylonian captives, rises to the throne of the most powerful empire in the world of that day. And so long as she keeps that fickle favor of the tyrant Ahasuerus, she will be one of the most powerful women in the whole world. What an event that was. We saw how it happened last week when we studied the majority of chapter 2. We observed the rather ugly process by which Esther became queen. The edict of King Ahasuerus, which went out like an empire-wide net, gathering the daughters of Persia to him so that he might find the one he liked best. And how Esther was caught in that net. We also observed that this becoming of queen required of Esther a certain compliance and compromise with the world that cannot be condoned. And the application for us was that we must stand fast and obey God rather than men, even in the face of pressure. Even when the power of the world and the power of wickedness presses upon us, we must not buckle and bend the knee, but stand fast and be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. We've seen that compromise, especially in the fact that chapter 2 emphasizes, it's mentioned twice, the fact that Esther, per Mordecai's instruction, kept her Jewish identity secret. And the keeping of that identity secret meant that she had to eat of the king's meat, much of which likely was sacrificed to Persian idols. She could not observe the law of God. That keeping of her identity secret required more compromise 
And blending in with the Persian court meant oftentimes conforming to it. And we notice the application there for us. We mustn't try to blend into the world. When we do, we soon find ourselves conforming to it. And yet in all the ugliness of chapter 2, we observed the hand, the hand of the unseen king at work in his most excellent and just manner, accomplishing his purposes. We're almost finished with the first two chapters of Esther, both of which are dedicated to setting the scene. And now at the very end of chapter 2, we come to the third scene in the book of Esther, the last circumstance that the book will relate before the plot is set in motion at full speed with the elevation of Haman in chapter 3. And what we read at the end of chapter 2 is a very brief account of a plot, an assassination plot against King Ahasuerus, which is made, which is discovered, and which is crushed. And it's quite striking how different our text reads from everything that went before it. Chapter 1 and most of chapter 2 has much detail. It goes on and on describing the events it records in detail. And these last few verses read almost like a record book. Leaving the impression that this is just some little insignificant event that happened at the same time. And that itself is significant. Because as we've observed in the book of Esther, God is in the details. God is at work behind the scenes. And that's the importance of this text, the end of chapter 2. We mustn't ignore it and move on. God's at work here. And this little event here is going to come back later in the book and become an important part of the unfolding, the plot, the book of Esther. Initially, I wasn't sure whether to do a whole sermon on this text. It's very brief. There's just a few things that are stated without much explanation, but I believe there is enough material here because we see the unseen king at work and because there are important applications that can be drawn from the end of Esther 2. So let's enter into Esther 2. We're going to consider the text under the theme Ahasuerus' assassination thwarted. Two points. First, a plot uncovered and foiled. Secondly, a deed recorded but unrewarded. The closing verses of Esther 2 describe a plot against Ahasuerus' life devised by two of his servants. We read of this plot in verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. We're given a time stamp here, in those days, and that likely tells us that this happened shortly after Esther's elevation to queenship. There is a close time connection between these events and the rest of what is recorded in chapter 2. In those days, two men plotted, Bigthan and Teresh, two chamberlains, the text says, that is, court officials. And their specific position is given to us. They were those which kept the door. 
Literally, keepers of the door or keepers of the palace threshold. These two men were more than porters. They were more than men who just opened doors for other people. The idea is that these men were door guards. They were part of Ahasuerus' security detail. They held an important place in the court. In fact, it's quite possible that this big thing that we read about in our text is the same man as Bigtha in Esther 1 verse 10. You remember Bigtha in Esther 1 verse 10. He was one of the seven chamberlains that Ahasuerus dispatched to fetch Vashti to bring her before his drunken crowd of guests with the crown royal. And if that's the case, it indicates that Bigthan in particular was close to the king. He was a chamberlain who ministered before the face of the king. In which case, this assassination plot here is indeed a danger to Ahasuerus' life. This intrigue runs deep in the Persian court. Their motivation is stated, but described very briefly. Verse 21 says, they were wroth. They were angry. Bigthan and Tirish were angry with King Ahasuerus. We don't know why, but we can surmise some likely possibilities. What do you expect in the court of a tyrannical king who wields power at his whim? You would expect a bunch of underlings who are going to be power hungry like their master, who are going to be scheming behind his back. And we can well imagine why these men were angry. King's servants have had a lot of work lately, haven't they? Doing all the legwork of Ahasuerus's half a year long banquet, doing all the legwork of publishing his empire-wide edicts, doing all the legwork now of Esther's feast, and all of the legwork of gathering together all of the daughters of Persia so that this wicked king can choose his favorite. There's much for these men to be dissatisfied about. All of this work and the oppressive whim of King Ahasuerus and so little reward. So, in their wrath, they sought to lay hands on Ahasuerus, the text says. In the Bible, when you seek to lay hands on someone, that means you want to kill them. They want to assassinate him. And so, these two men, who were both door guards, likely stationed at the gate of the king, they began talking, they began conspiring together, plotting how to pull this off and how to work it to their advantage. Now, at this point in the history, there's something for us to take away by way of application. They were wroth. And so they decided to get rid of Ahasuerus. We have a concrete biblical illustration here of the catechism's teaching that anger is a root of murder. And why Jesus accounts anger itself to be murder of the heart. And there's an important caution for us here. Because we share the same human nature as Bigthan and Tirash, do we not? And those same passions of resentment and anger and envy will arise in our hearts when we've been wronged, when we perceive that we are wronged, when we are unhappy with somebody, 
in a whole host of circumstances that we face in this earthly life. And it's very easy for us to excuse anger as a respectable sin. The Bible says, oh no, it's dangerous. Anger is dangerous to yourself and to others. Look how these roots of anger grew in Bigthan and Tresh. They harbored them. They found each other. They both shared the same resentment. And each served as a kind of echo chamber to the other. And a magnifier of the passions in their hearts. They talked. They talked about how dissatisfied they were. They talked among each other. They whispered. And before long their anger grew to such a point that it was fury. And they were seeking to kill Ahasuerus. That's what happens when anger is left to fester, to simmer, when grudges are nursed and nurtured, even when we might take a certain certain ungodly pleasure in that anger. We're cautioned here against anger. Anger in and of itself is offensive to God. Most often, the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. We must remember that. Because we're very quick to think our anger is going to work the righteousness of God. Usually it doesn't. And it leads in a very bad direction. Such a thing can topple a mighty king. Such a thing can wreak havoc in a church. Such a thing can wreak havoc in a family. Such a thing can tear apart friendships. Let us not see it as a respectable sin. But let us heed the apostolic admonition of the Apostle Paul, which we need to hear and hear over and over again. It's the counsel of the Word of God, which is really the application of the whole gospel of grace to us. This ought to be the mode of living for God's people, the citizens of the kingdom, not of this world, but of the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians 4, 31-32 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now back to the history. Bigthan and Tresh's plot to assassinate Ahasuerus, arising from their anger against him, was a plot uncovered. Uncovered by Mordecai, of all people. The Jewish man, who we were introduced to last week, fourth generation exile, Likely descended from a noble Benjamite family, a descendant of Saul, who served as a sort of civil servant in the Persian court, who had adopted Esther as his own daughter. This Mordecai uncovers the plot. We're told that Mordecai sat at the king's gate. The king's gate. And this is likely where Bigthan and Tresh were also stationed. The king's gate was an important structure of the palace complex in Shushan. It's where legal and business transactions took place. And it was a massive structure. Very different than, say, the gate of little Bethlehem Judah. Remember the important gate in Bethlehem where Boaz finished the legal transaction of the kinsman redeemer, redeeming the property of Ruth and Naomi. And... 
and finalizing his marriage to Ruth. The gate was an important place in the ancient Near East, in Israel as well as in Persia. But the king's gate, Ahasuerus' gate, was a massive structure. In fact, this structure housed the offices of many of the administrative officials of his court and many of the overseers of the palace supplies. There was constant traffic coming to and fro through the king's gate. Mordecai sat in the king's gate. And the meaning of that expression in the text is not that Mordecai was just a man who hung out there. He was an idle man and he went there and he hung around the king's gate to see what was going on, to watch people go here and there. That he sat at the king's gate indicates he had a position there. He was a civil servant. He had a job to do at the king's gate. That was his job site, you might say. And so we come to verse 22. And the thing, the thing being the plot, was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. It's while Mordecai is working at the king's gate, doing whatever job was his to do in the Persian administration, that he learns of Bigthan and Teresh's plot. The thing was known. And a better translation of that expression would be this. The thing was made known to Mordecai. That raises the question, how Mordecai learned of this plot. And there are a few possibilities. One would be that someone tipped him off. Someone made it known to him. Perhaps. Another possibility is that Big Thin and Teresh themselves tried to bring Mordecai in on the plot. Perhaps they were looking for another co-conspirator or an accomplice and for some reason thought Mordecai could fit and do that job. Perhaps. But it seems to me the likeliest explanation is simply that Mordecai overheard something he wasn't supposed to overhear. He sat at the king's gate, the text says. These two men were doorkeepers, threshold guards, stationed there at the king's gate. Both of these men had reason to spend a lot of time there at the same time. Perhaps they were the first ones there and the last ones to leave. It's easy to see how an opportunity could arise when Big Thin and Teresh are talking about their plot and Mordecai overhears just enough To catch the gist of it. And to recognize there's a real threat to King Ahasuerus' life. The thing was known to Mordecai. And so immediately, in the language of the text, suggests immediacy. He makes it known to Esther the queen. Here, she's called the queen. Her position is emphasized. Mordecai is in a position to get the information to the king swiftly because he has a connection to the queen. The queen, unbeknownst to others, is his adopted daughter. And so he reveals that plot to Queen Esther. Perhaps Mordecai sent a messenger to her, 
though I think it's more likely that he himself went to the house of the women where Esther was now living with the other queens and asked for an audience with her. Of course, Mordecai couldn't enter the house of the women. He was not allowed in that part of the palace complex. But as we read in Esther 2 verse 11, while Esther was going through the process of being selected as queen, Mordecai made it his practice to walk before the court of the women's house every day to see how Esther was doing. So evidently, Mordecai had access to the outer court and could get this message to Esther. Likely that's what he did. And so verse 22 records Esther's first act, or perhaps first recorded act, as queen. She certifies the king, that is, informs him of credible information, informs him of the plot in Mordecai's name, being sure to mention to Ahasuerus that this plot had been uncovered by your servant at the king's gate, Mordecai. We see here how Esther's rise to queenship has given Mordecai considerable political leverage. Our sermon on the first part of chapter 2, we raised the question about whether that's something Mordecai was after all along. And there's a distinct possibility that it was. We see how her rise to being queen has necessarily lifted him up and given him more access to the Persian court leverage by virtue of his yet unknown relation to her. And it's interesting to note, isn't it, how Esther still obeys his command as his daughter, even though she's out of his house and she's the queen of the empire. She still, as verses 19 and 20 tell us, she still doesn't reveal her Jewish identity even at this point. Well, now we come to the outcome of the uncovering of the plot. And the outcome was that Bigthan and Tresh's plot was foiled. Ahasuerus' assassination was thwarted. Upon receiving Esther's message, which she certified in Mordecai's name, Ahasuerus takes immediate action. And that's verse 23, the first part. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. The two doorkeepers were apprehended by the king's men and a full inquisition was made right away. Of course, if there's anything utterly intolerable to Ahasuerus, it's a threat to his own person. And so an investigation was launched. That's the idea of inquisition. An investigation to determine the extent of the plot and whether there were accomplices, others that needed to be arrested. Inquisition is a good word here, because we can well imagine what this investigation was like. It involved the interrogation of Bigfin and Tresh, and that interrogation was not gentle. Inquisition. But it seems no other names, no other co-conspirators were extracted from Bigfin and Tresh. Either the two had kept the plan all to themselves or hadn't progressed far enough in their plotting to draw others into it. And so the king's justice will be swift and severe and limited to these two. 
text describes that very matter-of-factly. They were hanged on a tree. That raises another question. What exactly was that form of execution? There are a few possibilities. One is what we might think of most readily is hanging by means of a rope, a noose. But that's the least likely possibility. That simply wasn't a, a form of execution that the Persians practiced. Another possibility is a gruesome form of execution inherited from the cruel Assyrians, which would have been impalement upon a sharpened wooden stake. That very well could have been what happened to these men. Or they could have been executed in a more conventional way, and their bodies hung on a stake to be exposed to the elements and to be a grisly display to the people of Shushan. This is what happens when you plot against King Ahasuerus. Whatever the form of execution may have been, it's certain that the bodies were hung on display. That's what the kings did. They made an example, an example of their enemies and put fear into the hearts of any others who might be thinking along the same lines. Hung on a tree. To Jewish readers, that would have had added significance because of what the law of God says in Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, that he that is hanged is accursed of God. Being hung on a tree or a wooden stake was a symbol of being suspended between heaven and earth, being accursed, bearing your own guilt and perishing in your guilt. It signifies the guilty Paying the penalty they deserve. That's the significance of the cross. Jesus died hung on a tree. Became a curse for us. That we might not be accursed. Here too is some foreshadowing. It's common in Esther. An event that happens. That foreshadows another that's going to happen. This is the end that plotters against the king will meet. And this is the end that plotters against his queen will also meet. The man we meet next chapter, Haman. Well, what can we draw by way of application from the foiling of the plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus? There are actually several things that we can say. First, There is an implied word here about love for the neighbor. Back to Lord's Day 40, which asks, Is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No, the catechism says, for God commands us to prevent his hurt as much as in us lies, and that we do good even to our enemies. We see something of that here. Now granted, at this point we can't really say Ahasuerus is Esther or Mordecai's enemy. After all, Esther is his queen and Mordecai seems to be working his way up the political ladder in Persia and they both have an interest in keeping Ahasuerus on the, on the throne. If Ahasuerus gets assassinated, that will very likely reduce Esther's influence if not displace her entirely. And what does that mean for Mordecai? His political career is not going to be going up. 
might at best stay the same. So granted, they have their own reasons to keep Ahasuerus in power. But nonetheless, the point can still be made to us. We are called by the sixth commandment not merely to prevent the hurt of good people we like. That's the easy part. That's the thing the publicans and sinners will do. We're called even to prevent the hurt of our neighbor in as, or as much as in us lies when we don't like that neighbor. When that neighbor is not kind to us. When that neighbor is wicked. When that neighbor is even our enemy. Isn't that Jesus' teaching when he tells us to pray for our enemies? Not to curse them, to do good to them that persecute us? We mustn't gloat when our enemies or the neighbor we don't like gets hurt. Yes, of course, we may and we do rejoice when wicked counsels are thwarted. When a wicked neighbor's wickedness comes to naught. We rejoice when evil is undone. When justice is done, we rejoice, but we do not gloat over the hurt of a neighbor. We must be in guard against that sinful passion and heed another apostolic admonition in the book of Romans. Romans 12, 19 through 21, where Paul exhorts the church and exhorts us. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Give place. Get rid of that wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how citizens of the kingdom of heaven deal with people they don't like. Deal with their enemies. They overcome evil, not with more evil. Not by saying, their evil against me justifies my evil against them. Overcome evil with good. With good. Connected to this, we're reminded that Christians ought to be good citizens in the land where they live. By that I mean not insurrectionists, not rebels, not those who are scheming to overthrow by unlawful means the powers that be. We're not to be sinfully compliant or compromising like Esther and Mordecai were. But we're also not to be rebels. And we see that here in how Mordecai uncovered the plot against the life of a very wicked king and gave that information to the one who could stop that plot from being carried out. Yes, Ahasuerus was a wicked man, an abusive tyrant, but the plot against him was wicked too. Christians should be good citizens. That's why. Jeremiah the prophet said to the exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29 verse 7, Seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in peace thereof ye shall have peace. That text is often misused by the kingdom-building proponents of common grace. What the text means is, we pray for the peace, the place that God has set us, the city where we dwell, the nation among whom we move. Because that peace 
serves the spiritual good of God's people. We're not seeking a kingdom of peace here on this earth. We're not seeking a political system that's going to give us that perfect peace. That's not what that text means. But we're to pray for peace. So that as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 2, we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And that's why the same apostle in the first verse of that chapter calls us to pray on behalf of kings and rulers and civil authorities. Pray for their conversion, since many are ungodly. But pray also that the Lord would use them to govern in such a way that the church may go about her life unhindered. But now the main application brings us to the unseen king. Ultimately, it's not Mordecai who uncovered and foiled the plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus. It was the hidden hand of the unseen king that thwarted this plot. Mordecai just so happened to be in the right place at the right time. And whenever we see these apparent coincidences in Esther, and we keep on seeing them, that signals to us that the unnamed God is here at work. God's name is nowhere mentioned, but his fingerprints are everywhere in the book of Esther. And here it is. Why was Mordecai in the right place at the right time? Why, of all of the civil servants who swarmed around the king's gate, why of all people was Mordecai the one to overhear the plot? Because he was the one who just now had the ability to convey that information to someone else that had just been put in a higher position in the Persian administration, Queen Esther herself, so that that information could get to King Ahasuerus. The whole structure of informants, the whole channel by way, this informa- by way of which this information reaches Ahasuerus, that's God's handiwork. God has put them in place. Coincidence, which is God's work, is providence. God thwarted Ahasuerus' assassination. God had Esther and God had Mordecai in precisely the place he wanted them in order to thwart that assassination. But now that raises another question. Why would God preserve this man's life? Wouldn't this have been a great time to give Ahasuerus what he deserves? We've seen a lot of Ahasuerus in chapter 1 and 2. He's an abusive tyrant who wields his power to fulfill his own whims and lusts. Many of us might say we wouldn't be disappointed to see him go. He's got it coming. Wouldn't this be a great opportunity for God to judge him? By means of the sword of Bigthan and Tiresh. But that wasn't God's will. God caused the plot against this wicked tyrant to fail. God kept this wicked tyrant on the throne. Why would God do that? This 
brings before us that important application that God has His own purposes with the wicked. And God has His own purposes for the flourishing of the wicked. And God has His own purposes for putting the wicked even in positions of power in this world. God has His own purposes here for preserving the life of Ahasuerus. It's not out of some non-saving grace towards Ahasuerus. Not at all. The longer Ahasuerus lives and sits on Persia's throne, the more he condemns himself. No, God preserves Ahasuerus because Ahasuerus is a tool in God's hand. Just like Assyria before him. Just like Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar before him. Just like the father of the Persian Empire, Cyrus, whom God called my servant. My instrument. God is going to use Ahasuerus. We saw how God's opening the way of Esther to become queen was a kind of preemptive strike against the kingdom of darkness. God puts his means in place before Satan gets his in place. Haman. And now we see God preserving the position he has put Esther in. If Ahasuerus goes down now, that will jeopardize Esther's position. God is working all things here for the good of his people. The unseen king is preserving Ahasuerus, not for Ahasuerus' sake, but for his people's sake. He's going to use Ahasuerus as he used those other kings. For them, for the church, for Zerubbabel, for Jeshua, for all the rest back in Jerusalem, and for the other believing Jews who were yet in exile in Persia, such as Ezra, who would be going back in a little while after these events. There's other things we can see here. Likely God used this to bring Esther into even greater favor with the king. I made the right choice, Ahasuerus must have thought. Not only is she as lovely as Vashti, not only is she more compliant than Vashti, but she actually helped save my life. And that increased favor of Esther in the sight of Ahasuerus may very well contribute to the fact that this fickle tyrant so willingly receives her later in the book when she comes unannounced, which was the transgression of Persian law. God's at work here. Another way God is at work, and another reason that he preserves the life of Ahasuerus is that this prevents the premature succession of the Persian throne. It prevents the throne from going too quickly to Ahasuerus' son, Artaxerxes. And one reason for that would be, God has designed that Nehemiah would later be the cupbearer of Artaxerxes. You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2. Nehemiah would become the cupbearer of Artaxerxes, and in God's appointed time, Nehemiah would find favor in Artaxerxes' sight, and he would be sent to Jerusalem with aid and help precisely at the moment that the struggling people of God in Jerusalem needed it. If Ahasuerus was assassinated now, and Artaxerxes came to the throne and put together his court, Conceivably, Nehemiah may never have found his way to that position of cupbearer. God is working all things here for the good of his people. His eye is on 
the apple of his eye. That's why he keeps Ahasuerus on the throne. And so let's apply that to our own day and our own lives because sometimes it seems God lets the wicked flourish. He lets them have their way. He lets them escape justice. And the appearance of this, and it's only in appearance, the appearance of this can distress us and lead us to wrongly question God's ways. Why does he let that person get away with that? Why does he give power into the hands of that man? Why does justice seem to be so delayed in this matter? We must remember the lesson Asaph learned, lest we too slip into despair and say, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. But Asaph learned, by the word and spirit of God, he went into the sanctuary, then he understood their end. He understood in the first place that God raised them to that position, those wicked men, to put them in slippery places. It would serve their ultimate condemnation. God would cast them down to destruction. They will not escape justice. Ahasuerus doesn't. In fact, an interesting historical detail. Ahasuerus would be assassinated. In 465 BC, by the captain of his guard, Mardonius, with the help of one of his chamberlains, a plot very, very similar to the one we read about in Esther, would succeed several years after this. God judged Ahasuerus as he deserved, but the time was not here. God had other plans to accomplish. First. And that is true in our day, in our lives as well. And we must hold on to that. We can't see everything with the eyes. We walk by faith and not by sight, trusting that the day will come when faith will be made sight. History. The history of the church. Your life. All of it is a tapestry of God's own design and handiwork. And it's a tapestry of complexity and intricacy beyond our full comprehension. God brings so many different threads together. God stitches in marvelous ways. His skillful hands bring threads together that appear to us out of place, offensive, even contrary to the design of the rest of the tapestry, and yet under his skillful hands and according to his wisdom, he makes them take their place so that they contribute to the whole. And the finished tapestry is marvelously beautiful and perfect. That's true of history. That's true of your life. The day will come. When you will see that tapestry finished. And you'll be able to say with wonder. That's why. That had to be. A deed recorded but unrewarded. That's what Mordecai's uncovering and foiling of the plot 
of assassination was. It was a deed recorded yet unrewarded. Now we come to the last part of our text. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. And chapter 2 stops. That's it. It was written. It. It. That is everything that had happened. The plot, its discovery, the man who uncovered it, the investigation, the results, the sentencing to death of Bigthan and Tiresh, all of it was written, likely by the royal scribe, in the presence of the king. That's what before the king means. In the presence of the king, in the court proceedings when he sentenced these two men to death. It was all written down in the book of the Chronicles. The Persian kings were diligent record keepers. And they kept a special book, the Chronicles of the King, which recorded all of their royal acts, all of their royal decrees, and anything else the king wanted recorded. It was a kind of historical biography of the king meant to preserve their legacy for posterity. And you can understand why these Persian kings were very concerned about the book of the Chronicles of the King. That's why later we'll see Ahasuerus having this book read to him. These men who thought very highly of themselves wanted their deeds recorded and remembered forever. So the Persian kings took detailed records. That's confirmed by scripture. You can look back on on Ezra 6 verses 1 through 3. And you see how when Zerubbabel and Jeshua were being threatened and opposed by enemies who were trying to stop them from building the temple, they wrote a letter to the king of Persia, then Darius I, Ahasuerus' father, asking him to look in the royal records for Cyrus's decree which gave them permission to build the temple. And that decree that was issued over 50 years ago, was found in the king's treasure house in Babylon. Good record keepers. God would use that good record keeping for his purposes. He used Cyrus's good record keeping, and as we will see in chapters to come, he will use Ahasuerus's good record keeping. So the deed is recorded. But the strange thing is that it goes unrewarded. And that's out of character for a Persian monarch. We know from history that the Persian kings kept another record book called the Book of the King's Benefactors. Here they wrote down the good things servants had done for them. And they were usually diligent to reward such servants, especially those who did something that safeguarded the king's life. And of course, that's politically prudent. Being diligent in rewarding such acts of service encourages loyalty and incentivizes others in the court having their ears open for anything that is out of place or threatening to the king. So it's very out of character that Ahasuerus would write this down, but do nothing for Mordecai. Why? The unseen king. God, his providential hand, who turned to Hajuerus' heart whithersoever he willed, God caused this to be recorded but unrewarded. Because God will later bring this to the attention of Ahasuerus and use it to begin the demise of Haman. God's hands are behind this. Let's conclude by focusing our attention again on that unseen king 
Jehovah. Ahasuerus and the Persian kings held important books. They were record keepers. So is Jehovah. Indeed, Jehovah is the God who holds the books. Revelation 20 verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. God holds the book that has the perfect record of all of the deeds of all men throughout time and history. The book which has your life in it. As we sing in one of our Psalter numbers, our days, are they not in thy book where all my life appears? That's the perfect record book in God's hand. No evil will escape justice. God has noted it. And that would terrify us. Sinners. That would terrify us. If it were not for the other book. The Lamb's book of life. In which is written. The unworthy names of God's elect people. Of believers like you and me. There is that book. And it's not a book of the king's benefactors. It's not a list of the names of those who have done some service to God and therefore have earned some reward from him. Absolutely not. In that book of life you will find the list of names and every single one of them is poor sinner, great sinner, unworthy sinner, but covered in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb which has blotted out the handwriting of the ordinances that were against us, which has blotted out our sins and the guilt for our sins, which has paid the penalty of God's justice. You see, we're like Bigfin and Tresh. We're rebels. We're insurrectionists against the King of Heaven. We would have united our voices with the Jews, who, when they beheld the Christ, said, away with him, crucify him. We deserve to be hung on a tree, accursed of God. But instead, the son of the king of heaven came and he gave his blessed body to be hung upon the tree. He was made a curse for us that we might never be accursed. That we might be redeemed and saved and given a place with him in glory Forevermore, our names are written in the blood of the Lamb, in the book of life. And all of the things in the history of our text are serving, are serving God's good purpose for those who are in that book. His precious book. The book he looks into with delight, with eyes of love. The Lamb's book of life. Your name is found, believer. All things are yours for Christ's sake. As Colossians 3 verse 24 says, Ye shall, ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Ye shall receive a reward. Not a reward of merit, but a reward of grace. 
As Jesus promises in Luke 14, 14, Thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. As Jesus himself says to us, Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Our Lord, our King Jesus, will not neglect to reward his people with the abundance of the blessings of grace that he freely gives them. Sometimes it seems like he tarries. Sometimes it seems like he delays. He doesn't. Fullness of time, he shall come again and we shall behold him. Receive that inheritance. Hold fast to that by faith. In the midst of this dark world, looking ever to Christ Jesus, our King. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, bless thy word unto our hearts. Comfort our souls with the knowledge that thou art the King who has written our names in the Lamb's book of life, that we are thine, and though we have done everything to demerit thy favor and thy love and thy salvation, thou hast given us Jesus Christ who has merited all of that, and for his sake thou dost freely give it to us. For his sake we shall never be accursed, but blessed forevermore. As we live in the midst of this dark world, may we cling to Christ and to Christ crucified. May we walk faithfully in thy service, waiting for the day when he shall come and his reward will be with him. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.